This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 198. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwired.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Now today, uh, just quick announcement, but uh, we just announced the initial presenting companies for the SNN Network Canada virtual event happening December 7th through 9, 2021. Please go to canada.snn.network to see the list of issuers that will be joining us. Paul Andriola from Small Cap Discoveries and myself on behalf of SNN Network have teamed up again to highlight our neighbors to the North Canada. In the last five to 10 years, small micro and nano cap investors have been finding value creative opportunities and we decided to host an event that encapsulates and showcases those opportunities that are available on the TSX, TSX Ventures, CSC, and the NEO. You can expect three days of keynotes, educational panels, company presentations, and one-on-one meetings. To register, please go to canada.snn.network and click the register button. Look forward to seeing you all there. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Trey Henninger. He is the host of the DIY Investing Podcast. And as a fellow microcapper in the trenches, we talk about a wide range of topics that permeate our landscape. You know, for example, why microcap is still not mainstream and the recent dark stock amendment. Trey and I then dig into his investing approach, which boils down to three prongs, quality, value, and management. Sounds simple, and and it might be, uh, but I thoroughly enjoyed uh, learning how he explains his process. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 198 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Trey Henninger. Everybody to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And we're doing an old school, classic Planet Microcap Podcast episode where we're going full-blown microcap. That's it. I mean, who knows? We might talk about anything else, but but I'm from what from but I think it's probably gonna be mostly microcaps. But joining me right now is 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 a gentleman who I, I think. Again, I feel like I've said this for like the last 15 interviews I've done. It's just long overdue. But in this case, it it definitely is long overdue. But uh, I'd like to introduce Trey Henninger. He is the host of the DIY Investing Podcast. And uh, with that, Trey, what's up, dude? How you doing? Doing well. How are you? Glad to finally get on the show. I'm stoked to finally have you on here and to talk all things microcap, you know, I, we were talking offline. I, I, I figured we'd also talk a little bit about the recent SEC dark stock rule because you play in that area as well. I mean, there's, there's so much we can get into today. But, you know, for those who may haven't listened to your podcast yet or even following on Twitter yet or, or just seen any of any of the content that you put out there, you know, let's start off with where your passion for investing came from. So where the passion for investing came from, I mean, I've been interested in investing since I picked up the intelligent investor. Um, and I think one of the things that I've heard about, you know, you sometimes you read it and it just clicks. And so since that time, I think I've styled myself as a value investor and looking for good deals and things. And I've always been frugal. And so looking for deals in, in personal finance kind of transitioned that into investing made a lot of sense to me. Um, but I kind of got into it at a young age before I really any, had any money. And so um, 
I was excited to begin investing with just a thousand dollars that I'd earned in a summer one time and uh, have been going ever since. But I just, I like finding deals and I like learning about businesses. And so that really got me invest into investing. And now it's, it's a hobby I love to do all the time. So what inspired you to pick up the intelligent investor? Was it a family member? Did you happen was, to see laying around? You know, I, I think it's, it's hard to put a finger on it looking back. I mean, I could make up a story, but I think it was just, I, I you know, heard about Warren Buffett and, and I think it was one of those things where he would talk about uh, Benjamin Graham a lot. And so I was like, well, you know, who is this person? And I, I think I had the choice between that and security analysis. Um, and security analysis looked a lot more intimidating. And, I, and I've still yet to finish in security analysis. And so um, I, I picked up the, the smaller book and, and I'm glad I did. Otherwise, I probably would have turned off and, and never dived deep into investing. You know, that's funny you bring that up. I, I, I guess the I guess the title security analysis has a much uh, more daunting uh, uh, feel than the intelligent investor, right? Like the intelligent investor, you think about that title, you think yeah. oh, I'm about to read like, I'm about to read like an epic, you know, like a Lord yeah. of the Rings kind of thing. But then security analysis, it's like, it sounds like a textbook. Yeah, and it is a textbook. And uh, <laughs> and, and again, I've read textbooks even when not required to. And, and I've read probably worse investing books, but I, I still haven't gone back and finished it because I don't feel it's very necessary at this point. But I probably lost 80% of your viewers right there, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> no, I think I think a good amount would probably agree for sure. Uh, but so catch us up because, um, you know, you already went through your passion, how you got into investing, you know, but, but tell us a little bit about your investing experience and your career prior to starting DIY investing. Sure. So I began investing when I was in college, uh, like I said, just summer money and, and um, trying to learn what I was doing. And uh, I think my first investment, um, I've written about it before, so people will be able to fact check me and tell me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's one of the first was I bought three shares of Apple um, stock. And that was like all of my money because it was before Apple stock split and um, ended up doing really well. I made, I don't know, 30, 40% within a matter of months. And I was like, man, that really kicks you in drive. And then I lost a ton of it because I put a bunch into like, um, stocks that I'd heard Warren Buffett buy, like Bank of America, which of course has done amazing since then. But I bought it at you know a few dollars a share, and it went down, and I had no idea what I was doing. I was there paying seven percent of my purchase price was in commissions because um, I'd buy like a hundred dollar position, pay a seven dollar fee, and then like pay seven dollars to sell it. Um, but you know, as it progressed, I learned a lot about. Um, the types of things that I liked. And I was basically just investing in the things that I was interested in. So I liked Apple. So I bought Apple stock, Bank of America. I think I bought Zynga um, because they had the, the Farmville game that I was into at, at a time with Facebook way back in the day for, for people um, that, I mean, maybe people are still playing that. I don't know. But um, I basically found all the ways I could lose money until eventually I found microcap investing where I learned that you know, all the analysis I was doing and spending time on these big, major, large caps um, could actually give me some sort of edge if I replicated that with the smallest companies. Um, because I was competing against, you know, tens of billions of dollars of hedge fund money. Um, and so I needed to go to find some place where I didn't have to compete against those people. And so um, I found microcap investing and I just kept going smaller, whether, you know, into nano caps or the dark stocks and just kept going deeper and deeper and deeper until I could find the areas with the least coverage, the least institutional interest and the lowest competition. So that's what I specialize in now. Very cool. And, and so, so you're, you're a private investor throughout this, like you never had held a professional yes. um, so I've finance never, job, I've, anything like that. Yeah. So I'm an, I'm an engineer by training. I've never held a finance job. Um, and I've just been investing my personal money, uh, now investing my family's money, but um, just completely private investor. I've had interest to um, become a professional investor at some point, um, launch my own hedge fund or manage, you know, segmented managed accounts. Um, and, I, and I think that would make sense sometime in the, in the short to medium term for future. But for I, I've not gone the professional route before. And, and so... Um, 
take it with a grain of salt. I'm an outsider when it when it comes to my my views and opinions. My favorite people to talk to on here, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I, love, I love I love I love the outsider perspective and and having come just found microcaps on your own. You know, that's that's always that's always really fun for me to hear about. So. All right, then. So you started DIY investing. When did you start that? And what was your your thesis behind starting DIY investing? For those, it, the the website's DIYinvesting.org. Yeah, DIYinvesting.org. Um, again, I started this when I was broke, and so I, I didn't couldn't afford to buy the .com from from somebody. I tried to negotiate it, but uh, we couldn't come to an agreement. Uh, so I got the .org. Um, I started this website and then it led into a podcast because what I wanted to do was create the tool that I would have liked to have when I was learning to become an investor. So it's very specifically tailored to discuss what I've learned about investing from a first principle standpoint, where I, I've taught myself investing through various resources, reading, investing myself, learning from others. Um, but I wanted to create a tool for someone that wants to become a good investor from nothing, without a background, without professional experience, where they can come in and learn all the way from the basics to intermediate to advanced, um, and that I would provide them the tools to do so. Because when I was getting started, I didn't have a, a resource like that. There were people that I drew from, but there wasn't someone that I felt really tailored specifically for people trying to learn from nothing. And so that's what the thesis is for my website and my podcast. And it's very focused on, you know, topical help. You know, I've put out a podcast that's going to be specifically on concentration or specifically on um, earnings analysis or things like that, where it's, this is what I think about this. This is what I've learned. This is the problems I've seen with it. Um, and some of my opinions are very mainstream and a lot of them are not. Um, but that's the focus of DIY investing. Um, and so it's really about my journey and, and what I've learned through, through doing. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, look, you have a very similar thesis and mission for starting DIY investing for why I started planning microcaps. So that's why I wanted to learn more because, you know, it, it, it's still to this day, you know, as much, um, as much as microcap and and just DIY investing in general is really kind of started to go, I, I'm, I don't want to make a huge statement to say microcap's gone mainstream or anything, but definitely DIY investing for sure. Um, yeah, you know, but but it's still just so interesting how people still overlook microcaps as a place to really hone those skills. I mean, you're doing it's it, yes, it can be a lot more work. But it yields just so much more dividends in terms of the experience that you get versus just, you know, doing your due diligence on an Apple and a Google and stuff. Yeah, like that. it still blows my mind. Well, it's I think there's a there's still a major misconception about about micro caps. I, I think it's there's this idea that you have DIY investors who get into micro caps, but they do so with the with the framing of penny stocks, like they're trying to buy something that is going to 10x overnight um, that might be completely worthless. Like there's no value at all. And they're doing it, you know, it's all driven by momentum or scam artists. And so I still think if, if it's gone mainstream, you know, due to something like Robin Hood or the GameStop, I mean, it's not gone mainstream in the way that I present it or I believe you present it. You know, it's, it's not mainstream in the sense of people are going to invest while doing the work. It's like people are going to invest like they're at a casino or a horse track race um, and, and each to their own. But that, that's not what I do. And that's not how I approach it. And, and to your point about skills, that's how I see it. I mean, you can really learn and develop your skills in micro caps in a way that you can't um, where you can always pull up the latest annual um, the analyst report on Apple or whatever um, than you can with something small, tiny that no one's ever heard of. Trey, you know, you know what it made me think of is like we published the, the microcap graduation series where we featured like, I think four or five names already that have graduated from, you know, micro, even nano cap to 
to large to at least small cap. Uh, yeah. You know, you you see stories all the time about Monster Energy. By the way, full disclosure, I'm not a shareholder in any of the names that we just mentioned. But, you know, I, I keep having like Gladiator go through my head of like, are you not entertained? Like, come yeah. on. You know, like, oh, this, this is clearly right there. You do the work. You're going to find some of these names before, before the crowd, before these institutions. And it's something that, I mean, for both of us as content creators, especially in microcaps, that we have to think about constantly is like, all right, we want to provide good quality information, but at the same time, like, do you have to just make it more entertaining for these folks to realize that like boring is beautiful? It's, it's, it's very hard. It's hard. It's really hard because I think there's a competing interest, especially on the content creator side of if I write a detailed write-up of a nano cap, you know, $40 million stock, um, that could be four times cheaper than Apple or something and better growth prospects, better balance sheet, and maybe a better business. And, and before people scream, it's like those things are out there, but I could get a hundred views for that. Or I could write up an Apple article without any research in an hour and get a hundred thousand views for no, no, for nothing. And, what is the incentive for me to put out that, you know, one content for the, versus the other? And it, those incentives can be fought, but they're always there. And so um, it's something that, you know, it's always in the back of your mind as you're trying to, to work your way through um, presenting yourself, you know, publicly. Yeah. I think about that a lot, especially, especially with some of those bigger names that, you know, like, oh, let's have a bull bear on uh, Tesla right now. Yeah, let's host that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I've been invited to stuff <laughs> like that. Right? I mean, where, I, I mean, I, I don't know. There's times where I'll wait into things where it's like people ask my opinions that like have some sort of relationship with me, so like I'm willing to respond because they're not just some random troll. Um, but it's going to be on you know Amazon or Tesla or something. And it's like my basic answer is like, well, I don't have an opinion on those things because I don't research them. But then sometimes it's like, well, okay, yeah, anything trading at 100 times earnings, I'll say that's a, a bad deal. Could it work out for you? Great. I mean, but I can also do a quick analysis on it, like ignoring whatever popular story there is about it and give you my straight read on it. And be like, that's like under, it'll never reach that price. Again. I was like, probably not. It pro like it probably won't reach the price I buy at because I think one time Amazon was at like two thousand and I said I'd probably buy it at two hundred and and they're like that's what I think it would be worth to like where I'd be interested and they're like it would never reach that I was like I think you're probably right it's also why I don't research it because it's a waste of my time um I don't know but yeah. but if I did that on a regular basis I'd I, well I'd, I'd either lose all my followers or I'd um, get a ton more. So I don't really know how it'd go. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, all right, let's, let's dig in a little bit on your own personal investing approach. You know, you kind of sure. alluded to it a little bit already, but you know, you basically say it all in one sentence in your Twitter profile. You know, you say that your key focus is high quality, durable owners, or earnings and shareholder friendly management with skin in the game. So, you know, maybe let's, uh, let's expound on that a little bit. Uh, you know, what, what, what does this investing approach mean to you? Sure. So um, again, I focus on microcaps um, because I think it's the area where I can have the biggest edge, but I am agnostic on finding good value. So I'll buy anything. If you came to me and you said this company is a hundred billion dollar stock and it's a good value, I'll look at it. It doesn't take much to put five minutes into something where someone kind of knows what I look for. I'll look at it because as you said, that focus that like, line that I have, it never mentions the size of the company. So it's just high quality. Um, we're focused on owner's earnings because I really care about the cash flow can be removed from the business. Um, and I need shareholder managed, friendly management with skin in the game. So when you break that down, there's really three prongs to my process. You have high quality business. You have um, management with skin in the game. And then you have a valuation component. So you got quality, value, and management is how I look into. And so every stock I buy needs to meet those three prongs. And it's not like two out of the three is acceptable. It's like, no, you have to have all three. So I used to have the philosophy 
few years ago, especially even when I started DIY investing, um, that I was willing to compromise on that. But now I no longer am. I've found enough ideas that need all three that I don't feel it's ever a good idea to compromise. So you could bring me a company that is trading at five times earnings and it's high quality and it's growing. But if I don't like the management, I'm going to pass. Now, I've missed or lost a lot of money, you know, because I've not bought stuff like that that ends up working out. But I also think that that's prevented me from losing money and actually taking losses because I've, I've set it up that way. So like if I think about what makes my process unique from other investors, um, I built it from first principles, which means I built it from what I thought made the most sense. And so I begin with quality um, and a lot of other investors do, but I have my own quality rating system where you every company that I look at, um, sometimes formally, sometimes informally, the first thing I'm trying to do is rank it on a quality scale, all the way from speculative to um, a generational business. So I have like six or seven rankings. Um, you know, I'll, I'll read up. So I have, well, basically the, the zero ranking is too hard. So I, I keep Charlie Munger's idea of a too hard pile, which almost everything goes into too hard pile. Um, but when you actually rank it, the first one's speculation. And there's like eight things that I can hit to go into speculation. And you have bad quality companies, average quality companies, high quality, um, excellent and generational. And so I'm trying to only buy quality companies that are high, excellent, or generational. Um, and those all have their, their little components to them. Um, but I think this is what makes my process unique because these rankings don't align necessarily with how other people think about it. And, and I built it myself. Now, there's going to be overlap with how other people do things. But, um, but that's, I think, the key differential because I'll still do value, and, but that's later. And I'll still evaluate management. Um, but it all begins and ends with wanting to own high quality companies. So let's start there. I'm going to go down that rabbit hole. So you mentioned that you're only looking for high, excellent generational opportunities. You know, um, let's dig in. What, what would you say are some of the factors that basically meet that criteria? So the, the way to think about it is there are a lot of things that would make something an average company to me most companies are going to fall into average. So when you're thinking about high quality, the number one thing I'm looking for is pricing power, period. It needs to have pricing power. If it doesn't have pricing power, then it's not high quality. And the reason for that is what I'm trying to do with my quality measure is different from what I've seen some other investors do. To me, quality is synonymous with predictability. It's not synonymous with high returns on equity. It's not synonymous with um, a moat. It's not synonymous with um, durability. Those things can go into it, but it's all about predictable. So a company that, had, that I can be highly certain won't decline in the future, but is unlikely to grow could be an incredibly high quality business for me. If I know, okay, this company will never lose money and it's never going to make less money than it is today, but I can only forecast like 1% growth that might be a generational business. Now, when I get to the valuation component, it's gonna have a lower value because it's not gonna grow and growth is part of value. But the ability for me to forecast it in the future is what defines quality. So if when I say generational, I need to be able to forecast those cash flows 20 years into the future, you know, one generation. I need to be able to like, be able to put some sort of DCF where I can ignore plotting out, well, five years from now, it's going to be this growth rate, 10 years is going to be this growth rate. It's like, no, the next 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, this company is still going to be around. It's going to have long-term durability of its owner's earnings. So very few things hit that bar. But to be high quality, you just have to be predictable. And so I eliminate a lot of things that aren't predictable. Anything commodity businesses are out. Oil and gas are out. I used to own those. It's been a change. But um, because there's times where I thought I could, could play the cycle, but that's no longer what I do. So there's all sorts of components and we can go into details, but it's really about the pricing power and predictability. If you want to go from like average to high quality and then excellent, the thing that makes excellent different than high quality is some sort of insurmountable advantage over other people. 
or other businesses, not people. Um, it's something unique where basically one idea would be like float. So can it grow for free? So like if you can grow 6% a year and distribute 100% of your earnings instead of 80% of your earnings, that puts you into excellent instead of high quality. Um, you know, stuff like the Berkshire Hathaway, Geico, that would go into the excellent category, that component of the business because it grows for free or OTC markets grows for free. Um, another idea would be if you're, and, in, and it's not the same thing, but a similar thing is if you can return more than 100% of your earnings as a dividend or buyback, like sustainably. So like if you earn a billion dollars a year, and so over 10 years, you're going to have 10 billion in earnings or, you know, ignoring growth for a second, but you're able to return 11 billion in um, dividends. There's something unique there. There's something different. And and I'm not saying, oh, well, you, you ran up debt. Like, no, no, you're doing this on a sustainable basis. So there's stuff I'm looking for, um, whether it be a monopoly or, or something like that, that would move it to that next category. And then the final category is just, you keep, you're excellent, but you can do it for 20 years. Because um, there's a lot of businesses that I think are excellent that I don't think are durable. And, and those two things are, are very different. So I'd like to own generational quality companies, but I don't limit myself to that. So I'm going to ask you a dumb question about generational because, you know, obviously that's probably the most, not just difficult thing to find on paper, but then you could have one staring you right at the face, right in the face, but you'd have no idea. You, you couldn't even predict that, it, you know, 20 years from then that this was going to be a potentially generational investment. You'd think like Netflix or even Monster Energy, you know, you'd think about yeah. some of those, you know, at the time, back in 2000, 2001, 2002, you know, that time frame, you wouldn't think that around now that these were, you know, these would be where they're at today, right? So, yeah. I mean, how, have you ever come across one? You know, you can name it or not. Yeah, I mean, there's a few how? examples I have that I like for generational that I think a lot of people can instantly kind of connect with. I mean, the first one that I like to share is Disney. Um, I think Disney's a generational business because... Um, it really builds its business about marketing to multiple generations. So like you watch their movies as a kid, you get their, you know, you buy their toys or whatever you grow up and then you, you know, basically indoctrinate your children in the same lore. You know, you want them to, you, you know, you watch the shows with them, you take them to Disney world, you buy them the toys. It's something then that like, when you're a grandparent, you can share and connect with your, your grandkids. And so they reuse the same material generation over generation and you know i think it was either munger or, or buffett talking about like it's like a it's an oil well that refills itself so you pump the oil out of the ground and then when you want to pump it out of the ground again 20 years later it's already full again and that's basically what disney's doing is they build this ip that connects with people in a unique way um and that allows them to be forecast over a longer period of time and so you're just trying to be like, okay, will this be around 20 years from now? Will this be around 100 years from now? And there's very few things you can do that can hit that. But something like a Disney would, would fall into that. Um, and it's really hard because there's, there's companies like Disney that you might say fall into that and be wrong. And so you just have to be, it, this is only one component of it. You still don't want to pay a super big price. But um, something like a Coca-Cola could fall into this. You know, it's been around 100 plus years the Coca-Cola brand is would likely be around a long time. Now I would say it's probably generational with low growth and that's how I would, I would put that one. So with low growth, um, it would affect the valuation. Um, but that's how you kind of fall into that business or, or my favorite company, um, that I don't own, but I used to is, is a Pinemon cemetery. And it's, it's not even a company. It's a, it's a basically a land trust where, you earn a royalty on cemetery plot sales in New York city um, at this cemetery. And it's existed for, I think it's like 150 years or something. And they, my projection had been that, that basically they have enough land to sell cemetery plots for anywhere from 20 to 150 plus more years. And so it's inflation adjusted because basically they raise prices with inflation and you don't pay any expenses, you don't run the business, you just get a royalty dividend um, every year. There's no operations, there's no expenses, it's a royalty business. 
um, to this trust that you own a, own a certificate of. So to me, that's a generational business. Now it might have 2% growth for 80 years, but I mean, you just say, okay, buy it at an 8% yield, put 2% growth and you got a 10% return. If you hit 8% yield, bam, you have a generational type return and you lock it away in a safe and, you know, get print certificates and your heirs can keep that. So like, that's what I think of like, there's very few of these, but when you can find them in the, in the valuations, right, which the valuation is almost never right. Um, that's what I like to, to, to fill up on. Very good. So, I, you know, you did mention as the, the, you know, you have your three aspects. You talked about uh, quality, value, and management, you know, leaving value out of the, for, for now, because, you know, that, that seems more yeah, or less yeah. standard, right? Yeah. You know, we don't know debt, so the revenues, predictability, the, you know, wouldn't trade. Okay. We, all right. Yeah, we yeah. Got that. Uh, so, so, you know, especially because we're in microcap land, you know, I'm, I always love to hear everybody's um, thoughts on how they evaluate management. You know, so for you, uh, what, what are some of the things that you look for? Um, are there any tells that, that you get from some, when you do talk to management and uh, yeah, love, love to hear it all. So what I really want to see, um, you know, you can talk about incentives, you can talk about stock ownership, um, you can talk about, you know, all sorts of things that go into it. And I think they all matter. Um, but I like the term shareholder friendly because what the most you could, you can learn about a management comes from what are they doing and what have they done in the past it is likely to predict what they're going to do in the future. Um, and it kind of goes against the standard SEC byline that all professionals have to say, you know, past performance is not predictive of future results. So it's like, well, I think that's kind of bunk. And unfortunately, it being not being a professional, I can say that um, for now, at least. Uh, and so the, the problem is, is you can kind of see what people have done in the past, predict the, what they're doing. You know, so if they, if they pay dividends and they're, they're communicating with shareholders and they talk about their plans and then they follow through on those plans, that tells you a lot. Um, and what's helpful is you don't just want a management team that pays dividends or don't just want a management team that communicates to shareholders. You don't want just a management team that um, makes good acquisitions or cap does capital allocation well or that owns stock. You kind of want everything together to say, if I was in this role, would I be doing the same thing? And it doesn't have to be 100%, but I really want someone that's owning the business like I would own the business. And I think that's really hard to find. Um, so just as like the, the quality measures can be a huge um, blocker in terms of what comes through my filters, I think the management becomes a big one too. So it's like, I want a management team that owns a lot of stock. Because if I'm managing a business, I would own a lot of stock in it. And if I was unwilling to own stock in it, I shouldn't be managing the business. And so that one hits a lot of them. And it's, of course, relative to, to what they own, but the incentives there matter. I was reviewing a company recently and the management team doesn't want to communicate with shareholders. Stock is great. The price is amazing. I think the price to earnings was like two. I mean, you can make a lot of money if you buy a PE of two. Um, price to book was like 0.15. Those exist. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, they, ex they exist in microcaps, but the this right. SEC rule came out about going dark and they're like, oh, great, we're going to disappear. To me, so I used to really love playing in, in dark stock land. And it didn't matter if, if the company was dark and less communicative, um, because at that point before the rule, you didn't know why that was. Was. They, might have, they might not have been doing it to get away from shareholders. But since the rules come out, it, to me, it's a, it's a much bigger red flag. So like, if you're not going to communicate, I don't want to own your stock. Um, so it's kind of hard because there's, there's art to this. It's not a formula. Um, but I want to get an idea of what they're going to do. And it needs to be what an owner would do. Um, it doesn't matter how good they are at operating the business. Their, their capital allocation needs to be what I want it to be. Because when I say management, I'm really thinking capital allocation. What are you doing with my money? Um, are you taking good care of my money? Are you treating it like gold? Or are you treating it like your money? Spending it lavishly, taking vacations, you know, corporate debt. Um, so it's hard. Um, but I, want, I, I really like activists is what I've seen recently. People that, that you know, buy a lot of stock and they take over the board um, because I can more easily trust capital allocation then. 
Um, but I want to see, I want to see them own a lot of stock. Gotcha. I mean, so going on, on that, that other rabbit hole that I wanted to go down, we mentioned at the top, you know, the new SEC amendment went in uh, into effect in September 28th. So, you know, you play in the space. What's, what's been that experience like for you? Have you been able, have you gotten, have you gotten out of some positions? Have you added to some of your positions? You know, what, what's been going on? So the, the dark stocks that I, I still own, and I, and I said before, I, I don't own Pinelon. I do own a single share, I think, um, still. So um, I don't consider that a real position. I can you know, some more at this point about tracker positions, but um, to be what it was. But like, I can no longer buy or sell Pinelon with my brokers um, because it's a dark stock. It's not a real stock, but they don't put out um, reports because they're not a company, technically. Um, so now they're inaccessible to me. I can't, I can't trade them. Um, there's another company that I used to own, um, which was Northfield precision, um, NFPC and they went dark and now I can no longer buy or sell their stock. And I actually sold out of them because I anticipated not being able to, to buy or sell. And I actually liked the business a lot. Um, and it's family controlled, which wasn't an issue when I'm buying in because I like the capital allocation. But it was one of these things where it's like the decision not to continue communicating to shareholders in a way that would allow their stock to trade was a sufficient enough bar for me to sell. Even though I love, like if I could own the whole business, I would buy it tomorrow. Um, so if they, if they, on off chance, they listen to this, then, then feel free to let me know. But um, it's one of those things where it's created a market where I can no longer buy dark stocks, but it's also created a market where I no longer want to buy dark stocks because the companies, a lot of dark companies came public, you know, in the free reporting. Um, and I think the, that's become a red flag between who's chosen to report and who hasn't. Um, I don't mind if you don't report it, how the SEC wants you to, but you need to at least publish it on your website or, you know, publish it and, you know, put out your, your financials so that investors know what's going on. Yeah, no, agreed. I mean, it, like when you, when you say like that becomes a red flag, what about it? And this may seem obvious to most who are listening to this, So I apologize to, to Dan and to others <laughs> that know this space very well, but you know, for those who didn't play in the dark stock area beforehand or now they're they're they've taken a look because of the new rule or maybe some of the yeah. episodes that we put out you know why is that a red flag so it's a red flag to me because like when i care about shareholder friendly management i want them to care about specifically minority non-control shareholders and what this rule does is it punishes minority non-control shareholders like myself like Dan, who mentioned that various investors who specialize in this space have been heavily punished by this rule because they can no longer buy or sell stocks in the dark space. So what was attractive to me as a dark stock investor was I could do my work, I could do my research, I do all my own due diligence anyway, but it meant that I could actually get an edge, like an informational edge by doing research in Scuttlebutt that was all public information but you actually had to work for it. You couldn't, you know, it might not have been on the sec.gov website where you could just download it easily or, or, or so you had to go and, you know, go visit in the field or, or you know, do work where you go scuttlebutt in their customers and learn more about the business. And you that gave you an edge that you could no longer have. What became a red flag is there's plenty of reasons you might go dark in the first place. One, it's expensive to file with the sec. So if you deregistered, you might have done that purely to save money for your shareholders. That's not a red flag. That's, a, that's good for shareholders because it might cost a million dollars a year to file with the SEC. Well, if you only make $2 million a year, which again, nano caps, that ha that's, un that's pretty common. Your profitability could go up 100% by choosing to deregister. That's hugely helpful for shareholders. So like if they deregister and then still publish on their website, then great. I love that. I'm making more money. I can buy the stock still. But if the SEC says publishing on your website's not good enough, so you need to do it this other way, and maybe that costs you $50,000 a year. Well, okay, 
that's actually still a good deal for minority shareholders so they can still trade the stock. You're still saving money. And if you don't choose to do that, and it's not even 50,000, you can comply, I think, for like 10, 15 grand. Um, now, it's a little bit different on depending upon some of the, the auditing piece, but like it's under 100 grand to comply. If you choose not to do that at certain levels of scale, you're intentionally doing it to, to um, you know, not hurt shareholders, but you're not regarding their interest as important. So if the CEO or the management chooses not to see a minority shareholder as important, then that's the red flag. No, and, and I think that's actually a good allegory for even fully reporting companies, you know, and that's yes, why I wanted to get full, in. Exactly. I, 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 and, and that's why that's why I wanted to get into that because I think that's a that what what you just said you know is a perfect example of alignment you know management alignment with shareholders management alignment with your stakeholders so I'm I'm, I'm glad we did that despite maybe some folks being like rolling well, their eyes well, well so like a know, comparison so. <laughs> point, well a good comparison point for that is it's not about reporting it's not what it is it's alignment I want alignment with management I want to know that they see the stock like I see the stock. It doesn't have to be 100%, but they need to know that like the stock price matters. The business performance matters. Like the earnings that you have matter. And if you do something that dilutes shareholders or you do something that destroys value, then that needs to hurt them like it hurts me. And if there's a misalignment there, I have a problem. And so this also applies in mega cap land where you have dual class shareholders, You know where you have like founding super voting shares. So a founder can own 5% of the company and have 60% of the votes. I have a problem with that. And that applies to some of the most popular companies in the S&P 500. Um, you have these control structures that don't align management with shareholders because they've been able to control a company well above and beyond um, their economic interest. Um, so that's the key. It's, it's They're not aligned with me. It has nothing to do with they are... There's not, they're not frauds. They're not bad. Like they could be totally reasonable and they could be doing the best thing for the company operations wise. They might, they don't have to steal. They don't have to do anything. It's just, they're not aligned with me. And that's the bar for me as an investor. Very cool. So uh, I wanted to transition to another concept that's very micro cappy in our, in, yeah. in, in feel. And, um, you know, Ian Castle recently tweeted, uh, no one pays attention to your stock idea until it doubles. You compounded on that by saying uh, sometimes even until it triples, you know, and I mean, all of us who are in the microcap space would argue, you know, that's that's part of the edge. That's the part of the fun in looking at microcaps, getting in before the institution, getting in before the crowd. You know, so for you, how do you think about this concept and, you know, uh, maybe using one of one of your portfolio companies as an example of, of how this tends to happen more often than not, especially in microcaps? Yeah, I mean, so uh, the example I used in that tweet was the SODI, S-O-D-I, Solitron Devices. Um, and I, I basically said no one was interested in it until it tripled. I bought the stock at $2.38 was my average cost. Um, for a period of time, I've continued to buy up at higher prices. So it's no longer my, my current average cost. And I don't know what my average cost is anymore. Um, but I bought the bulk of my original position at that price, you know, from $2.250. And the price is now $8.50. And so it tripled pretty, pretty steadily up until the $9 range. And, and it wasn't until it got over about $7, seven to $8 in that triple range where people actually got interested in it. And it was mind boggling to me because when I was buying the stock, it was $5 million company. And I forecast that the earnings power was somewhere in the range of $1 million to $2.5 million. So anywhere from two times earnings to five times earnings. And I thought it was a high quality company with aligned management. So I had my triple threat, but I bought it from, I think it was March or April of 2020 through September of 2020. And I, I was at, I had to have been anywhere from a quarter to half the volume for those six months. Like for a six month period, like no one was buying the stock. I mean, you'd go weeks without any shares trading. You'd have 100 shares trade one day or something, or and then you'd have like a 5,000 share trade day or something like that. And I just was accumulating and it wasn't going anywhere. And then it steadily started growing because I guess at some point I'd taken a lot of the volume and then there was more buying interest and it kind of it, it grew over time. But no one was interested in the company until they started 
reporting higher earnings and all the stuff that they had been signaling would happen publicly. This is one I had no informational edge at all. The company basically puts out an, a, a, a press release that says, well, we have one-time expenses of, I don't know what the number was. It was like a quarter million a year uh, or a quarter million per quarter for the next two years or something. And it's going to end on this date. And so you basically had a million dollars of extra expenses. And so they were unprofitable for a period of a few years. And it was all auditing related and they're working out some stuff and they had, they weren't, they were dark at the time. They said, well, we're going to be public. We're going to be reporting properly. And oh, by the way, our expenses are way higher than they will be. And like, they're going to end on this date. And every quarter they put out a new one, like, oh, they're going to end on this date. We're on track. They're going to end on this date. And all of a sudden it's like, I bought before they reported the good earnings. And they start reporting millions of dollars of earnings. And what do you know? Everyone, you know, the price starts rising. But then no one talked about it until it was substantially higher. Um, and I, I just find that whole concept interesting. Even the responses to my, what I said was interesting. I mean, the, the first thing is like, well, well, what's another good idea? It's like, you don't understand. Like, it's interesting still. I mean, so I own stock and sold from. If that wasn't obvious, I still own stock. Um, I think it's accurate that I've not sold a single share since I bought it. Um, it's possible it's not, but I certainly own more shares than I did when um, when I started buying in the $2 range. Um, so I'm a substantial shareholder and it's over half my portfolio. But so I have interest if the, if the stock is gets interest. But the, the piece that was interesting is people ask like, well, well, okay, well, what's the next good idea? It's like, no, no, no. In micro caps, like they're not even done when they double or triple. Like I took, I bought a company at $5 million market cap and now it's 16 or $17 million. And my original thesis was that it could be a 50 to $100 million company. I mean, that's another triple. That's another 6X. I mean, and, and it's not a forecast, but like, I don't, that's what's exciting about micro caps is you can find cheap. I mean, because what ends up happening is I basically bought at two times earnings because their earnings power is somewhere in the range of two and a half million. Like I said, I wasn't sure whether it was one to two and a half at the time. It turns out it's in the two and a half million range. And I mean, how do you get to $100 million? Well, if they can grow it to 5 million over five years, and then you have a 20 times multiple, bam, you're at 100 million. I mean, I bought it at $2 something a share, and that's a $40, $45 stock price. So that's 20x. Will it happen? I don't know, but I'll be along for the ride. And, and so, but I just, that's what I find interesting. So I've talked a little long. <laughs> no, no, that, that, I, I set you up for that. So that, that was good. Um, you know, we were talking offline about how, um, you know, you're, you're more of a concentrated investor. You don't have, you don't hold too many stocks, you know, um, Dan, Dan Shum actually asked a while ago when I was, uh, you know, you know, I was, I was, I was, uh, putting it out there for potential guests to have on. And, uh, he wanted to ask you on here, you know, how, how do you, how do you keep from falling asleep with only three stocks to watch? And then actually he followed up again today with another question that I put it out there on Twitter, we were chatting and uh, about core positions versus tracker positions. So love to hear your take on both those and Dan at no name stocks. Thanks for, thanks for both questions. Yeah. And so uh, I love Dan's work. Um, he's taught me a lot about investing. I've learned a lot from him, um, which he, he, he can't understand because I think he owns somewhere in the range of 50 stocks. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing joke that, uh, so I currently own four stocks. It's, it used to be three so to that point, And it was three, I think, at the time he, he mentioned it. Um, and, and it, you know, I do this. So I'm not an investor for my day job, right? And so I do this as a hobby. And I also produce a podcast and run a website. And, and so it's a lot of time investment. And so one of the things that I've done is I've tailored my strategy towards my circumstances. Um, I, my goal is to do investing five to 10 hours a week. And so if I'm going to do it five to 10 hours a week, you know, and I have 50 weeks, it's, you know, 500 hours a year. And you compare that to professional who might be putting in two to 4,000 hours a year, you know, on investing, or you have teams of people working on it. And so what do I have to do? Well, I have to focus my strategy to tailor to my strengths and my weaknesses. Well, my weaknesses, I have less time than other people. So it means I can either research companies just as much as they do, but own less stocks, 
or I can put myself at a time disadvantage, or I can own even fewer companies and concentrate even fewer to three to five stocks and still research more than they do for a company. So my ideal portfolio is five companies at 20% each, you know, and an equal weighted position. And it doesn't work out to be that on any constant time. Like I said, my current, um, my current largest holdings over 50% of the portfolio. Um, but my goal is five positions at 20% each. Well, what that allows me to do is I only need to find one or two new ideas per year to maintain that. And if I turn the portfolio over every five years, three to five years, that's what that works out to be. So if I have 500, year, 500 hours to work on investing this year and I only have to find one idea, that's 500 hours per idea. I would argue and I would guess I'm putting in more time per stock than not just the average DIY investor, but the average professional investor. And I'm buying companies that they can't buy until it 10Xs. And so I think that gives me a substantial advantage. So that's why I do it. I sleep great at night with a concentrated portfolio. I actually got down to five stocks by selling a bunch of what I owned because they weren't as good as what I had held. And so I sleep better at night owning four stocks than I ever did on 15. Um, so I, I do pretty well. I don't fall asleep. I find it really interesting. But again, it's not, I don't spend 60 hours a week on four stocks. I, I, you know, it's, it's substantially less. Very good. And then I think the, the other question he asked is about core positions versus tracker positions. You know, your call if you want to you take on that one. Sure. I mean, so I own four core positions. Um, there are stocks I own that have trackers, um, but usually my trackers are like one share. Um, some people consider a tracker maybe 100 shares. Um, I don't buy or sell tracker positions as a matter of strategy. Um, sometimes it's just on a whim, trying to get an idea. Sometimes the tracker positions are important because when you buy microcap stocks, especially when, when they're dark, you might need to own shares in order to um, get financials from the company. Um, some of that's changed since the SEC rule, but uh, I own some tracker positions uh, like I said, like I think the Pine Lawn is the one that I own. And I own like a share of Berkshire Hathaway because um, they give out shareholder benefits and you can go to the you know annual meetings. And so there's, there's purposes for tracker positions, but it's not a matter of strategy. I certainly don't need them in order to research a stock or to be more interested. I know that's some reasons people use it for. Um, like Pine Lawn, I, I had owned a share because I wanted to know the accurate dividends because they aren't reported accurately. And so I figured if I own a share, then I know based upon what check I receive, how much the dividend was. And so that's why I own something like that, because I need to know accurate information. And I think I'm one of the two public figures, if you want to call me that, of who's reported on that stock the most. And so, like, th there's no information out there unless I get it myself. Um, so that, that's the only use I see for trackers. Very good. All right. We got one other question on uh, Twitter. And you tell me if you want to answer this as well. It was from at Lind Winkler uh, uh, on SODI, on SODI. Uh, it, it's at a PE of four to five. What's going on? Temporary increase in earnings or permanent? Sure. Um, so, again, disclosure, I do own Solotron. Um, full disclosure there. And um, I, I, I believe myself to be a significant shareholder in the company. Um, and you can take that how you will, uh, whether from my peer view of the companies, uh, just take it as you will. Um, also, I don't know the future. So take that. That piece is important. Um, I believe the earnings are overstated, which is why it's showing us four and a half. Well, assuming it, it just changed to, to four and a half. It used to, it used to be about nine. And basically they put their most recent quarter, they reported earnings of about $1.16 per share. Um, at least $800,000 of it is overstated. Um, because, so they reported at $1.16 a share is like two and a half million um, for a quarter, which is not accurate because they, their PPP loan from the, Paycheck Protection Program, I think is what it is for the U.S. government. Um, they had it forgiven in the second quarter. And the way that that works is it counts as tax-free income. So they had to report it legally as income on their, their earnings report. 
And so $800,000 or about 40 cents, you know, do the math yourself on the reporting um, is overstated. So I think that their earnings are listed as a dollar eighty-five. Um, their earnings are listed as a dollar eighty-five per share, and that's not accurate. Um, now I think they can hit that eventually, but it's not—it's not a trailing twelve-month earnings. Um, their actual earnings are better than a dollar, but less than a dollar eighty-five. So they're trading at eight fifty. So if I say it's better than a dollar in my view, then I think it's at least at a PE of eight and a half or lower. So still good. I still think it's cheap, but um, that's definitely temporary. I mean, or it's, it's not that it's even temporary or permanent. It's just not real. Um, it's, it's a balance sheet thing. Got it. All right. So and we just got another tweet in from at Brian Greenbaum uh, saying, uh, trust the process. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he's referring to Joel Embiid right there, especially the, 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 that was good. Well, um, I've gotten some, yeah, I mean, I recently <laughs> sold stocks that have, uh, have had some volatility. And so people have been, been tagging me recently. So I think I could know where that might be coming from, but uh yeah, oh, that, that's pretty funny. All right, we'll get into that at another date. So, you know, we're, we're rounding the bend here. So I, want, I wanted to ask, a, this is my favorite question to ask everybody on here is, you know, what would you say is an investing experience that really changed your career the most or had an impact on you the most? Impact on me the most. I think, you know, there's a few ways I could go with it. Um, I think one of the ones that's impacted me the most was my investment in GameStop. So um, obviously I made tens of millions. No. <laughs> so I, I bought a lot of shares of GameStop um, and made it a significant portion of my portfolio a few years ago. Um, I don't remember the exact dates. It's, I've, I did record podcasts on it. So it's out there for anyone who wants to, to listen to the, the DIY investing podcast. You can listen to both, I think, my thesis and the one where I said I, was, I made a big error. Um, I think I have two separate podcasts on that, but I put a substantial amount of my money into GameStop. I think at the time it was like 20% of my portfolio and my losses were substantial on that company. Um, I, well, depending upon how you look at it today, I, I, I'd say I overvalued it, but really what I did was I wasn't um, investing. I was speculating, but I thought I was investing. And so that was a big learning for me because what I was doing was I was trying to buy a cigar butt, but I'm not a cigar butt investor. And before that investment, I didn't know that. But after that investment, I did. So I lost a lot of money buying GameStop because I saw it as one, I could connect with it. I mean, I, I, I'd gone to GameStop as a kid. Um, I knew their business. I felt like I knew their business better than the average analyst or at least better than the average DIY analyst, certainly better than the average analyst. I mean, you would read stuff and like all the, all the bear cases were just, they didn't know the business. I did. I mean, so there's, whether it was arrogance or whatever, it's like, I knew the business, but what I should have known was I also knew the business was bad. Like I knew the business was bad and I thought I could make money off of it. And, you know, I should have waited till February of 2021. And then I would, I mean, then I would have been rich because I, I owned enough shares that when that was going parabolic, um, I was like, man, you start doing the, the math. The math can get dangerous when you, when you look at something that's gone up 100x within a month or two months or whatever. Um, but, but that one taught me the most because it taught me that I should not buy companies that might go obsolete. And then that leveraged me into to learning other lessons like avoiding commodity businesses. And it's not that you can't make money there, but it's that it's not my money to make. I'll leave that to the other investors. I'll leave that. And, and so it's something I joke about with, with Dan, you mentioned, I mean, it's, it's, there's companies that will make a lot of money and I'm happy to watch other people make the money um, and root them on. But I, I'll stick to my process as, as Brian said, um, and I like the high quality stuff. That's what allows me to sleep at night. Listen, I got to ask one follow-up to that. I mean, what was that <laughs> like when you were watching? You're like, wow, that's, this is happening. Okay. Oh, it was crazy. I mean, I, I mean, I'm trying to think of numbers. I mean, I, I bought the stock, whether it was $12 a share, 
I bought shares of stock in maybe eight or or something and, and seven dollars a share. I mean, my thesis is pretty simple. I was like, this is worth at least 20. I mean, pretty reasonably. I mean, they had tons of cash, tons of net cash. I mean, there was like, okay, even if every even if they shut down, like they're gonna have to liquidate. I mean, it was just a classic last puff investment. I mean, it should triple, whatever. And I just didn't realize like they had some bad news that I thought was going to happen, but I thought it was priced in. And so that, that's when I realized I was speculating. Um, but that, that wasn't your question. I mean, it was interesting though, because I would have people contact me about it. And I mean, cause when you're public about your, your investments, it, it changes the game. And, and I don't think it changes the game in a good way. Um, or, and so it was just fun because I sold the stock at a loss, maybe at, I don't know, $3 a share, $4 a share. And then I also saw the stock above $300 a share. And I had people I knew buying the stock in the hundreds of dollars. A share. Like this is in real life. And they would say, oh, I'm buying. I mean, have you seen what's going on? Like I bought some. And I was like flabbergasted. I mean, that this would ever happen. Because I mean, I thought it was still worth 20 something dollars a share. And I was, I was... And it was almost, it was surreal watching it happen. I mean, and then I avoided calculating my actual wealth, what it would have, because I was like, well, I would have sold at 30 or 40 or 50. I mean, I would have never held till 400 or, or whatever it actually ended up hitting. Um, but I remember just sitting there just in disbelief because I, I mean, because I could have been one of those people that just held on, you know, which would have been an investing mistake. And I'm glad I didn't because if, if I had held on, regardless of how much money I would have today, I would have learned the wrong lesson. Like if I made millions of dollars from that investment, which might've been the outcome, I would have learned the wrong lesson. Um, and I would, I, my future wealth would probably be worse, even if I was sitting here with a million dollars of GameStop wealth today. So, um, but it was surreal. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like you just, you like, you know, I'm sure everybody listening has done the hindsight investor thing before, right? And uh, I've, uh, yeah, so I'm just curious as to, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that you, that you opened up about, you know, what was going through your head during that time, because especially as someone that owned a substantial bit, you know, in your own por- personal portfolio. And then took it and then got out of it well before, you know, it went parallel. I mean, those are, you, you also can't help but think like, this is such a, this is a fluke. Like this has to, oh, like. Yeah. I mean, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter because if you think about what happened, like if you think about GameStop from the perspective of anyone who owned it, that wasn't part of the craze, like that person anyone that had some position in it and it wasn't their thesis that it was going to go parabolic because of a gamma squeeze or whatever, a four short squeeze or whatever the actual plan was. Any wealth they made from that and anything they cashed out wasn't because their thesis was correct. And so the lessons they learn are a mismatch with the process. And that's really dangerous. It's dangerous at all levels of wealth. If you think that the money you made is your doing, and it wasn't actually your doing. Like if, it, if their thesis was there was going to short squeeze, they bought and they made money, great, totally fine. You're, you learned the right lesson because you were right. But if you made money and you were wrong and you think you should replicate it, that's the danger. Um, so I actually didn't care watching that because it was never going to be real wealth. It wasn't my thesis. And I've seen the same thing with, I mean, I recently sold NACO stock earlier this year and it went up. I don't know what it's gone up 60%, 70% from where I sold it or whatever. Um, now, and I've had people like, Oh, you know, was it a mistake? Do you regret it? And this was like, it's like, no, like it wasn't my thesis that natural gas was going to go from two to $6 in the next five months. If that was my thesis, I wouldn't have sold. And, and so it's important to, to have the clarity of thought there. And I certainly don't claim to always have it, um, but I work really hard to not take credit for gains that weren't based upon my thesis. Um, yeah. Because at the end of the day, like sometimes, hey, it's better to be lucky than right. You know? Yeah. And, I've, know. Had, and I've had some that are lucky and I've made money. I'm not, it's not just been bad luck. Like, it's not like yeah. I miss all of them. But I've had, I mean, like I bought, when I bought 
Sodi, for instance, it tripled. I didn't have a thesis that it was going to triple in a year. I mean, I said I thought it was worth, I don't know, my original write-up, I think I said something like $14 a share. So I said, but like, when I forecast value, I forecast it like, maybe it will reach value 10 years from now. And so, okay, well, then that was going to exceed my target return of 15% or whatever. Well, yeah, but if it triples in a year, then it's going to make my portfolio look amazing. But I'm not a genius because it tripled in a year. Like, that wasn't in my control. Um, even though it makes my portfolio performance look amazing, but it's not what I did, you know? And so I think you have to really separate. And that's the big lesson for investors. You mentally have to separate. Are your returns earned based upon what you did or were they luck? And it's okay if they're luck. You want to buy situations where they're lucky. I mean, the best companies, and this is why you want shareholder-friendly management, because you're more likely to get positive luck. And so you can take credit for positive luck from management decisions, but I don't include in that stock price movement. Very good. All right. Well, you know what? I think that's a great place to end it because we're going to have you back on at some point. We're going to have you on a round table. That's good. Because I like, I like this topic of talking about, you know, the idea of being good versus lucky or hitting your oh, yeah. being I think that's such a fun, interesting topic because I I bet there's quite a few investors listening to this that, you know, if they've won, they probably say, you know, more than 50% of the time, I just got lucky and, you know, I I may have found something, but, you know, it was some, it had totally, do, totally to do with a, another thesis hitting. You know, but I just yeah. happen to go along for the ride. So we're we're gonna table that for another for another pod <laughs> Sounds because good. that's because I think that we could go on for another two hours. So with that, Trey, where can our audience go and find more information about DIY investing, the podcast, the website, as well as to follow you on social media? Sure. So uh, my website is DIYinvesting.org. Um, but the best place to probably follow me because I publish to those other places is this on Twitter at Trey Henniger, that's T-R-E-Y-H-E-N-N-I-N-G-E-R. Or you can search DIY Investing, you'll probably find me or search your Twitter and you should find a link to my name uh, through there as well. Um, my podcast is the DIY Investing Podcast, available on Spotify, Apple, YouTube. Um, so I have a YouTube channel where I post um, podcast episodes as well as some other content. Um, but definitely follow me there and you can always um, reach out to me. I'm glad to, to chat and discuss things. Um, so thank you for having me on. Awesome. Trey, it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, I'm excited for the next chat. Sounds good. Have a good one. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc. and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.